0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Hello it is coming up to 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 tonight. Today we'll be looking at Zena's family history Zena's father was made a refugee when the state of israel was declared in 48 and the family his family ended up living in canada and Zena managed to get back to palestine in the last couple of years so we'll be hearing all about that the aftermath of the west Fitzgrave fire on port phillip bay and surrounding areas we're speaking with neil blake who's the port phillip baykeeper the cosy relationship between arms manufacturers and universities. Jacob Gregg renegade activist, is up on all that. And Salah Adjur, I, um, I'm sorry, I, I find difficulty saying that word and I shouldn't. But he's an Eritrean now living in Australia with, um, and he'll be talking about the history of Eritrea and the long conflict with Ethiopia. But first, as always, it's Mr. Kevin. Really?
2: A week, journalist, now when Big Supremo scuttled their more or less son, was last seen... But no, first, another of our incredibly difficult tests, the week that was periodically throws up as a mind-boggling challenge. This one, guess who? And I warn you, it's not easy, but the first clue, and we'll come back with the second clue if you're still struggling with it, first clue, headline, in quotes, in the True Blue Aussie capitalist review, morning of the final caring business class party leadership ballots, never trust a Queensland copper. Guess who? Tough one but another clue soon to help us out a week when the winner of the final ballot was last seen on stage in Albury and with due respect to Albury when you turn up on stage in Albury it's obvious your musical career isn't exactly on the up. Scuttle them last seen belting out all you need is love and we all love true blue Aussies and therefore we all love true blue Aussie he preached. Thus scuttle them and tiny a bit more for the bosses and Kevin Ann screws the workers and Erica bets on the bosses and George Christian married son and Conchita Fiery rants, Wells and Matt Cole Caravan well the united tight-knit love thy neighbor team must love all true blue Aussies including evil workers and evil pejorative pejorative union bosses although given Scuttle Pentecostal Church believes well knows the more wealthy you are the more the dear baby Jesus loves you it must be a stretch religiously for poor Scuttle Them to love the poor. As an aside, the one catch is, does this mean we have to love them? but in a week when he called for the deregistration of the evil construction union because of its out of control anti-troubluosi industrial sabotage, regularly taking action, a unprotected action over insignificant matters like worker health and safety. When those issues are matters for caring employers, nothing to do with unions, in a week when yet another construction worker was murdered and two others injured, caring employers and their mouthpieces like the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review have also supported the need to get this blot on society deregistered. Indeed, the Capitalist Review calls for action over this out-of-control union by the day, but it's not even reported the two recent murders on building sites. Although we can be sure they'll find a way to blame the evil union. For instance, its ban on all sites involving Clark Cranes, the subject of two recent major accidents, until full safety checks are done, shows how reckless the union is and how it goes out of its way to hurt poor caring employers and resist jobs and growth. But as that other major threat, Karl Marx, wrote, murder isn't murder when it's done for profit. One of the union's most heinous ongoing crimes is attempting to have construction workers, wait for this, wait for this, join the union. When all of the above reasonable politicians and expert responsible commentators know, the first and most critical right of caring business class relations is the right not to join a union. And second, the union they don't join has no right to charge them some sort of fee for improving their wages and conditions with the fees paid by those evil, lazy, avaricious workers who choose to join the union. I always feel that argument logically gives me the right to walk into any business, take whatever goods I want, and declare they have no right to charge me which thus far has failed miserably. The logic doesn't seem to apply. I'm treated like a thief. I believe in non-union rights, I plead. Anyway, there's this interesting case heading for the federal court where a law firm is suing the construction union for gaining all these benefits for union members at a labour hire firm, which non-union members missed out on. It negotiate, negotiated only on behalf of those workers who joined the union, ignoring that first and most critical right of caring business class relations. How evil can you get? The union treachery, this law firm righteously claims, robbed its clients and was contrary to non-union members' interests. Now here's the shocking bit, listener. The union, President Tony Mar claimed, you're not going to believe this, did nothing to cut across the rights of others. When we've just proved it broke the most important principle of all. The union advertised across work sites for workers to join the union if they wanted to be part of its litigation. If you don't get on the train, you don't get the benefits. They're riding our back a bit like a jockey. Talk about mixed metaphors, ignoramus, and how diametrically opposed to the love all, true blue aussies philosophy of scuttle-them-tiny-in-the-team that don't join but enjoy the benefits philosophy which doesn't of course apply to caring employers but is essential for their workers is not dissimilar to the US of the UN of the US of the world's attitude to the international court of justice refuse to join but assume as the world's leader and arbiter of liberty freedom and democracy the right to determine who should be dragged before the court the bad guys who don't believe in the US arbitrate liberty, freedom, and democracy, the refuse to join bit based on the deeply principled determination that no U.S. odd citizen should ever face the Court of Justice, a determination so ingrained that that epitome of peace and love, thy neighbor, go-to-war advisor John Bolton the head, has declared the Court will disappear off the face of the earth altogether. Its personnel won't get past the U.S.O.B. border because it is considering the outrageous possibility it may charge cream of of youth, young men and women in uniform, great fun to be with, love their neighbours and dear little children, trained killers with minor misdemeanours like torture, slaughter and destruction. What is this blot on world justice thinking? Imagine what life would be like in Afghanistan and Iraq as just two examples if the U.S. of had not liberated them with a bit of torture, slaughter and destruction. Bringing us back to our very, very difficult quiz. First clue was, never trust a Queensland copper. Now, next clue, same day, another headline. Duffer, a low version of trample the poor, says China Media. Now, there's a real clue there. You, you may pick it up. Now, I'll give you the answer. Get you out of your misery. It's the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Constable Peter Duffer. The article claiming he's a low version of Donald by attacking his concentration camps, razor wire, and sink the boats policy. He's boycotting the Stolen Generations Apology. His recent co- comments about African crime gangs, well, so called. And he was an embarrassment in true Aussie politics, the global times spat out, showing why it is critical that Donald, and thus true he go to war with evil China. How can they compare Donald and Pete? After all, when this new book by a ob journalistic icon and an anonymous White House operative said nasty things about Donald, obviously false, fake news, Donald said they were liars and the authors obviously suffering mental illness. Whereas, as the former bureaucrat supremo of concentration camps, razor wire, etc. claimed, Pete did all these nasty things to help mates, Pete said he, the bureaucrat, was a liar and obviously suffering mental illness so so where's the comparison the week that was is not a big fan of nike which suffers from some disease to do with a tick although it's the customers who suffer as the tick bites but in this case big commotion over in the us over nike using colin kaepernick in its 30th anniversary campaign so what i hear well Kaepernick led the kneeling during the National Anthem campaign last year as a protest against racial injustice and, uh, sorry, police brutality which mushroomed with Afro-Americans across the National Football League. As a result, he's now unemployed, cast out by his team. Well, all hell's broken loose over the Nike campaign. People who love their country and its anthem and its flag and presumably racial injustice and police brutality posting all sorts of Nike products being defaced and destroyed. To illustrate the giant minds protesting over the protesting, many have declared they're going to switch to other brands, including one which they obviously don't realize is also owned by Nike. But the biggest giant mind of them all, Donald himself, told Lord Rupert's Facts Not Fake News, I watched Colin Kaepernick, and I thought it was terrible. I will tell you, you cannot disrespect our country, our flag, our anthem. You cannot do that. Which is pretty rich coming from a guy who does that by the day. I hate to have to be critical, but I have to criticise all of us, yes, including myself, for being so, so selfish. Because the funeral industry has complained that profits are falling because not enough of us are dying, not playing our role, not doing our bit for the economy. Finally, back to that non-evil union right, any doubts of just how evil, evil unions are were erased by the Pig Iron and Bob Research Foundation, that totally independent appendage of the Caring Business Class Party, which researched and attacked the Pro-Union Fair Work Act, and one of our Caring Business Class favourite geniuses, Will Cost the Workers, big supremo of the True Blue Aussie Profits Council, who called on them to address, as his first urgent item of business tightening up caring business class relations law which as he too explains are so loaded in favour of evil unions and workers and so biased against poor caring employers not sure what he has in mind but possibly the stocks the lash, maybe the noose and just think the latter could help out the poor funeral industry win win good afternoon
1: And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy and as I say, tomorrow morning at 9am it's your chance to hear a whole hour of Mr. Kevin Healy and his friends on city limits. At the moment it's 4.11 at 3CR. Following the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948... Many of the Palestinians who survived the killings and destructions of their homes and livelihoods were forced to exist in refugee camps in neighbouring countries, and some eventually settled in countries far from home. One such person is the father of Zina Akari, who lives in Canada, as did his daughter before she came to Australia four years ago. I spoke with Zina last week. Then your father was a young child of five when he, his family and the wider community were forced to flee their homes following the attacks by the Zionist forces. As a child yourself, what did you learn about their lives prior to the State of Israel and that traumatic experience for your father and the others living in Accra, the historic walled port city? dating back to the 11th century, which lies almost intact both above and beyond street level today, dating back from the 18th and 19th Ottoman period.
3: When I was a child, it was very difficult in Canada for people to understand that we were Palestinian. I didn't quite understand myself. Uh, when we, people would ask us where we were from, we'd say Palestinian and people would say Pakistani. Uh, no one really recognized what Palestine was. It was a country, it was a place. So a lot of the times my father would get frustrated and just tell people we were Lebanese. And then when I became a teenager and I went to junior high, there were a lot of Lebanese people with me. And they would I would say I'm Lebanese and they would say, no, your name is not Lebanese. So I would go home and I would challenge my dad and I would say, well, what happened? Are we Palestinian? Are we Lebanese? I'd like to know what's going on. My dad kind of gave me highlights, basically, of what happened. He said um in 1948, he was five. When the state of Israel was created, he became a refugee at five years old. Him and his parents had to run for their lives, and they walked to the border with Lebanon. There were trucks waiting for them there with blankets and water and they took them to a refugee camp so he didn't really open up very much I I just knew that he was traumatized and he didn't feel like talking about it and as I got older I started digging deeper myself to find out the story of the Nakba the catastrophe.
1: And how difficult was it to find out that story from your home in Canada?
3: Growing up in Canada there wasn't materials to read or people to talk to about it but when social media became a thing in 2007-2008, I connected with a lot of other people who were Palestinians and I started finding materials to read online and I started learning information that I never even knew before. I didn't know 500 villages were destroyed. I didn't know thousands of people escaped from the cities. I didn't know any of that until the Internet and social media opened, opened this world of information up for me.
1: Could you talk to your father about it then, now that it became so open? How did he interact with social media?
3: My father refused to talk about anything until last year. Last year he came to visit me in Australia. My father is retired, so when I was growing up in Canada, my dad would be at work and we would only interact with a father-daughter relationship in a very serious manner. When my dad came to visit me here in Australia, We were together 24 hours a day for months, so he needed to fill in that awkward silence. So I would ask him questions about what happened when he was young, how he grew up, uh, what the refugee camp was like, and slowly over these few months that he stayed with me, he felt more comfortable about talking about these things, but I really had to push. I had to push him, still very traumatic and very painful. For him because he remembers everything that happened
1: and what did you learn from him
3: i learned that there are millions of stories out there that we don't really know about because we don't really take the time to find out the personal stories like we know the statistics and the numbers and the history but we don't know the stories of the people that it happened to and i i realized that it's still something that traumatizes my father even though it's 70 years later, he still he he needs to be able to deal with it in some fashion, some manner. I think telling me was a part of his remedying this trauma that he was carrying with him for such a long time.
1: How many of his family ended up in that camp with him?
3: My grandparents, uh, my dad had two siblings at the time. Um, his grandparents, my great-grandparents, his uncles aunties their spouses and their children so it was well over a hundred people from my father's family and extended family that ended up in this camp.
1: Did he talk about much about what it was like to live in such cramped conditions and maybe often unsanitary conditions that the people were forced to live in? Until
3: last year, when he started telling me about everything, he refused to admit he, he was from a refugee camp. He would always say, no, no, we, we didn't live in the camp. We, we were refugees, but we had an apartment. And then last year, I was watching with my father, The Ten Commandments, with Yule Brenner. And uh, my dad became very sad, and he said to me, you know, Yule Brenner visited us in the refugee camp when I was a child. And I said, Dad, Yul Brenner came to the refugee camp? And he said, yeah, they had to shave our heads, and we only had one pair of boots, and we would take buckets to fill up water, and Yul Brenner was watching us, and he started to cry. And then I said to my dad, they had to shave your heads? Why? And he said, well, they were afraid of disease because so many people were together and lice and things like that, so they shaved our heads.
1: So in a sense, he, he was ashamed of being there.
3: He's still ashamed of being a refugee and living in a camp. He's still not able to process it.
1: How old was he when he was able to leave?
3: I think my dad was 16 or 17. He's the eldest of uh, 13 children. So my grandparents had to rely on him to work to help with the rest of the family. So my dad left as soon as he could. I think he finished grade 10. He, w- he went to find work. Where? Uh, I think at first he went to Egypt and then he went to Libya to work on the oil rigs.
1: How difficult is it is it to get out of those places? I thought you'd sort of have to have a, a sponsor to allow you to get out. Not so?
3: In the 60s and the 70s when there was like the pan-Arab movement it was easier for Palestinian refugees who are Arabs to move between um Arab nations and Arab countries and at the time the oil field in Libya was really booming so my dad was willing to do anything not too many people would go to the desert so he didn't have a hard time getting out he, ha- he had a very difficult time getting out of the Middle East and going to Canada because as you know refugees don't have passports or identity documents or anything like that so When he left Libya and went to Egypt, he applied actually to come to Australia and he applied to go to Canada. And Canada answered first, and that's the only reason my dad ended up in Canada and not Australia.
1: And that must have been another trauma for him too, to have to leave his family, his extended family in the camp.
3: I don't think that he felt traumatized to leave them there. I think that he was very desperate to get out, to have some kind of citizenship and personhood somewhere. And to be able to get out to help the rest of his family who were left behind. He says many times that it was his goal to get out, to get a citizenship and to help the rest of his family. I'm sure he was sad that he he couldn't take them all with him at at the same time, but I don't think that he was sad to leave them there, no.
1: Did he ever talk about how difficult it was to settle in a country so different from the Middle East?
3: He left the Middle East, and then went to Canada. He landed in Quebec in the middle of winter, and he had sixty dollars. And Canadian winter is snowy and very cold. He didn't have the proper attire. He didn't speak French. He spoke English. He tells me uh, many stories about how he felt like another, uh, like a refugee, another time. When he landed in canada because he didn't understand anything he had to basically go into survival mode again
1: and how did he survive as a young man
3: Uh, he got any job that he could so he tells me how he worked at a factory making undergarments he would find rooms in people's houses to stay at so that he could save as much money as possible so that he could send the rest of the money Back home to my grandparents who were still in Lebanon, still refugee in Lebanon, he said he would do anything to talk to anyone so that he could learn French and English uh, to practice his skills. He just, he, he wanted to basically, he wanted to do everything to survive.
1: Was there any companionship for him from other people from the Middle East as he was settling into Canada?
3: Yeah, he had a distant cousin in Montreal His cousin helped him meet other people and get jobs and make acquaintances. So there was a a loose network of people who helped each other survive being in such a foreign place.
1: Your mother, was she Palestinian?
3: My mom's part Palestinian and part Lebanese.
1: How long was it before you got the urge to go back? I imagine you would have had that urge for quite a while as you were growing up. And when did it actually eventuate that you went to palestine
3: i've always wanted to go i tried to convince my parents to take us many times but they didn't think that it was a good idea or they were afraid to go or they thought we weren't allowed like they thought for sure we're not going to be able to pass the authorities and get in so when i moved to australia i went to a dinner and uh, i saw some australian women telling the palestinian ambassador that they just came back from palestine And another Australian woman saying to the ambassador that she's going to Palestine. So I I became very agitated, and I said to the ambassador, it's not fair that people who have no attachment to Palestine can get in and go out, and I can't. And he said, well, that's not a problem. I can send you. Do you want to go? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course I want to go. So a few weeks later, he signed me up for a youth camp, for a peace camp. And uh, in 2016, I went To the West Bank for the first time ever
1: what was it like
3: it was interesting and scary and happy all at one time I was very appreciative and very grateful to be there and see see part of my country the West Bank is only part of Palestine to me because I come from historic Palestine I come from the Galilee so the Galilee is inside Israel right now So when I went just to the West Bank, I felt like, okay, I made it three-quarters of the way, but it wasn't a complete visit. It was still incomplete because I didn't make it to my actual home in the Galilee.
1: Just focus on those two of those emotions, happy and scary. What made you happy?
3: I felt like I was triumphant. I I actually made it back. I'm the first person in three generations of my family to return. So for me... I felt like I was accomplishing something for my dad and for my grandparents who died and couldn't make it back home. And scary? Quite frightening to be in a place that's under occupation. In Canada, it's very peaceful. You don't usually see soldiers. You don't see tanks. You don't see uh, machine guns. and There's no checkpoints. So seeing those things was quite confronting. I was, I was very afraid.
1: Your interaction with the, the local people
3: I felt like because this was my return home that this was my extended family. When people knew that I was the daughter and granddaughter of Nakba survivors, they were very loving, very welcoming, very open. They took me everywhere. They treated me like I had never left. So, I will be eternally grateful to the to the local Palestinian people.
1: How did you find the living conditions of the people?
3: It really depended on the the area and their status. If you go to the refugee camps, the people live in squalid conditions. Some people have houses. They live like normal. In Ramallah, it's a very westernized city. So there are areas, you know, where people are affluent. There are lower income areas. It depends what area you're in.
1: What about the settlements that must have been an eye-opener for you or did you already know how much that was encroaching on palestinian land the settlements
3: actually shocked me because when you look at the landscape when you're in uh, the west bank of palestine the palestinian towns villages and cities are built into the environment but then you will see you will look across from a palestinian town and you will find the built the settlements in a face off. So settlements are usually built on hilltops or mountaintops. It looks like they've cut the mountaintop right off and just plunked prefabricated homes on top. It doesn't look like it belongs to the land. So, and they're very isolated with a wall surrounding them. They, they're kind of like a fortress. So for me, I found the settlements quite confronting.
1: Did people talk to you about home demolitions, about in the farming areas where their olive trees have been ripped up, where the lemon trees have ripped up, the impact of the wall on their lives?
3: Yes, everywhere I went politics is part of their life. People want to show you and tell you what's happening. So I went to a village called Wadi Fukin Wadi Fukin is in the West Bank and there's a settlement built right on top of it on the mountain top. The settlers in Wadi Fukin, uh release their septic tank sewage into the valley onto the crops of the villagers in Wadi Fukin and destroy their crops. So I heard about that. I went to Aida Refugee Camp. Uh it's in Bethlehem and um it's surrounded by the wall the most tear-gassed place in the world. The funny thing is, most people go to Bethlehem and they go to Banksy's new hotel called the Waldorf and they go look at the spray-painted murals at the wall, which I, I felt like they beautify the wall. They don't really show you the severity of it. But most people who are visiting don't actually go around to the other side of the wall and see the people living in either refugee camp who are imprisoned by this huge wall. Every sector of Palestinian society, every area of Palestinian society, has something political to tell you about their daily struggles with the occupation.
1: Did you meet any of the Bedouin people? I did. I
3: went to the Nakab Desert in the south, and I met people from Araqib. It's a Bedouin village that's been destroyed 132 times, and it's under threat of being destroyed for the 133rd time we heard from the people how Israel's trying to impose different way of life on them which is destroying basically their health, their way of life, um, their family structures. It's very difficult for them to live in a permanent space because they're a semi nomadic culture.
1: Can you talk a little bit about Jerusalem and a little bit more about Bethlehem, the the old parts of the city and, and what your feelings were when you saw those living a 1,000 years old or more?
3: There are two things about Jerusalem and Bethlehem that really upset me. I noticed that when I was in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem, pilgrims would come from all, Christian pilgrims would come from all over the world on tour buses and would come just to churches, look around, and then get back on tour buses and leave. They wouldn't have anything to do with... um, the locals, they have, they don't shop at local shops. They don't talk to the people, the living stones of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which I find as important as the buildings that they're visiting. So most people don't get a sense of what's happening in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem because they come, they do a tour, and then they leave. So at the Church of the Nativity, people come in, and then they don't go to the old city of Bethlehem, which is thousands of years old, no one talks to a Palestinian or eats Palestinian food or anything like that. It's very strange. I, I found it quite disrespectful of the locals, actually. In, in Jerusalem, the, the air is quite tense because there's a direct campaign to take over the city and Judaize it. So it's very important for pilgrims who are going to support the local Palestinian community and I think that's what bothered me the most. Inside the old city, you could see that there were people just going to the church and then leaving and not having anything or any communication or any financial support for the locals.
1: Is this because they're on tours that are arranged through Israel?
3: Sometimes. Sometimes they're arranged through Israeli tour organizations or they're uh, through, like for an example, if an American group is coming, they have an American tour guide with them, which is focused on just showing them the things that mean something to them instead of instead of showing them all facets of the place that they're in.
1: Did you have much interaction with the children?
3: I met a few children. Yeah.
1: At school or home or where?
3: I've met a few, so I met some at a place in Naida refugee camp it's called the Lajit Center, the Refugee Center. This Lajet Center provides after-school programs for children in the refugee camp. They make books for children and they sell books to fund their educational programs. They teach them at the Lajit Center music. They have some counseling for children who have trauma, who've been arrested.
1: And that's a big thing, isn't it? The children arrested, I spoke with the people from Military Court Watch a couple of weeks ago and the, the trauma not only for the children but for their families and their whole communities when these children are often dragged out of bed in two o'clock in the morning? I think that the whole society
3: is traumatized because living under apartheid-like conditions and occupation and segregation, not knowing when you'll be arrested or for what, creates trauma. The problem is there's no um, serious foundation for counseling for children who suffer trauma. To try to cope with the trauma, sometimes Palestinian families will uh, make parties for their children and say that they're heroes when they get out of prison, you know, to try to be uplifting. But sometimes it has the opposite effect. It kind of teaches a child that they're not allowed to be sad or hurt or traumatized. So I think mental health for children in Palestine is an issue that needs to be addressed, definitely.
1: Did this visit to the West Bank make you more determined to get back to the area where your family were from?
3: Yeah, in in 2016 I went to the West Bank and then in July of 2018, uh, a couple months ago, I went all over. So I went from the Nakab to the Galilee, I went all over Palestine and I, I eventually made my way to my home city of Raqqa. It's in the north, in the Galilee.
1: Now that's a new city and an old city, isn't it?
3: there's the old city right on the Mediterranean Sea, and the new city is built around it outside the old city walls.
1: Can you talk about the old city what it what it's like
3: The old city is it's a four thousand five hundred year old city got remnants of every empire that came through. there are crusader tunnels, the houses are all made out of stone it's um the only city napoleon couldn 't conquer it 's a very beautiful place, but um, and it 's a gorgeous place to visit, but at the same time it 's also suffering from Israeli rule, so people think that only people in Gaza and the West Bank are suffering, but it 's not true. Uh, Palestinians all over Israel and Palestine suffer just different kinds so in the West Bank, Palestinians are free to move within the West Bank uh, and be Palestinian, but not they're restricted from freedom of movement outside the West Bank. Palestinians who live inside Israel are freer to move around. They can go to the West Bank and around Israel, but they're restricted from being Palestinians by identity. Israel tries to force them to be called Israeli Arabs and speak Hebrew. So the new nationality law, the nation-state law, came out last week is a part of the problem so in akka it's uh, very interesting because inside the old city it's mainly palestinian and um, the people are suffering there from being restricted in their identity
1: how difficult was it to find out where your family came from
3: it wasn't difficult at all it wasn't difficult uh i had a friend who was a journalist who decided to take me, and he asked around. Um, my grandmother's sister stayed, so we started asking for the names of the people who we knew, and uh, it was very easy to find them. It wasn't difficult.
1: And the house where they lived, my
3: grandparents' house no longer exists, but we know the name of the neighborhood and a brief description of how to get there. So. We went to the neighborhood, and we stood on the stones where my grandfather's house used to be.
1: And your aunt? My
3: my great-aunt passed away, but I met my cousins, her children, and their children, and their children's children. So uh, it was very beautiful because in my homecoming, I didn't find my grandfather's house. Like I said, it, it had been demolished, but I did find my family, which was more important to me.
1: There's a story about a wedding, isn't there?
3: Yes. So my journalist friend said he would take us to Akka and he would show us around. Who is us? Me and my fiancé. And I said, okay. And he said to bring a dress and for my fiancé to bring a suit. We got to Akka and we thought that we were going to take some photos on the Mediterranean Sea at sunset. So he asked us to go into a dress shop and change, which we did. And we came out, and he had surprised us with a wedding band and a wedding march. And he had found all my cousins and brought them. They didn't know that we were going to be there. They thought they were extras in a video. And uh, when we had this impromptu wedding, my cousins were asking him who's the bride. And when he told them, we realized that we were family. It was very beautiful.
1: Big celebration, big feast for the for the wedding.
3: Yes, when we were walking around the city with the wedding band, people were coming out onto their verandas and people were walking in the market. Started following and it swelled up to a hundred people. Everybody was celebrating, people I knew and people I didn't know. It was very beautiful.
1: And obviously, this was being videoed to send back to your father.
3: Yes. So uh, we phoned my dad that day and he got to talk to his cousins. And then when they made this video for us, I sent it to my father.
1: Is keen to go back himself?
3: This is the first time in 70 years that he has accepted to go back home. After he watched the video, he said, I think now it's time to go home.
1: Who would he go with?
3: I'm going to take him. Great. Yeah.
1: Have you got a date set yet?
3: In the next few months, I'm trying to get everything organized to take him.
1: Thank you for telling a story.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate
1: it. That's a great story, wasn't it? That Zena talking about her father, life in Canada, and now the possibility, well, the probability in the next couple of months that they'll both go back to Accra, the town, city where he was born. He was forced out. 70 years ago, It'd be great to catch up with her on their return from that visit. And here's what you can do. 3CR are selling Kefya Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support palestinian industry these are traditional scarves available in red and black
4: or you can choose from a modern design go to 3cr.org.au shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours i'm
3: jane clifton
1: Scores of dead fish, eels and birds have washed up along the shores of Stony Creek and the mouth of the Yarra River near Spotswood, Newport and Williamstown since the fire at the factory in West Footscray late last month. Stony Creek runs from near the site of the factory fire in Somerville Road into the lower Yarra River area flowing into Port Phillip Bay. I spoke with the Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake, Late last week And asked him What has been identified As the main ingredient In that large fire
5: Well there were probably uh, A number of things But um, Toluene Is uh, is one of the Key uh, points And apparently that's uh, Something that I was Associated with benzene and other sort of products that were, I saw noted in the media And it's a, an aromatic hydrocarbon which is highly flammable One of the ingredients of TNT apparently which is interesting So a very uh, tricky job for the uh, fireys to have to deal with a situation like that there are Just unbelievable respect for those people who... Uh, have to um, control them in some way And it's very difficult apparently The way that it was configured within the warehouse itself There was uh, hundreds if not thousands of drums of the stuff Were surrounded by a, a group of containers So that it was almost impossible to actually get in and access the point So yeah, very very challenging situation
1: Sounds like one of those ships that's come up the, the bay Obviously of them.
5: Uh, I, I don't believe that the stuff's actually manufactured in, well, maybe it is, uh, I'm not sure, but it is coming from a, an oil-based product, yeah, so there's lots of things coming out of oil that uh, turned into various substances for use in products, and then in this case in solvents and paint strippers and things like that, glues, that's been the main use of the product.
1: Well it's been over a week now, what have there been the environmental impacts as you see them
5: uh, well I had a look at um, the stony creek backwash, and that's uh, certainly the Stony Creek in general has been uh, in terms of the waterways is the most affected area, but clearly though there was despite um, the pumping to, or to take the surface slick off the creek before it got into the yarra and uh, that was being done continually over a number of days, there still was some slick escaping into the era. And uh, so and certainly the other thing, though, is in the, the airborne, because it isn't... Uh, and um, a very volatile sort of product that it does turn into gas and escape into the atmosphere as well. And the aroma of that was very strong on a Saturday and even on Tuesday I could smell it from across the other side of the river uh, just near Westgate Park. So it certainly was sticking around.
1: What about the impact of the creatures that live in the Stony Creek?
5: Yeah, well, certainly there were thousands of, of fish that were killed and uh, I'm sure there were any number of bird species as well. Um, as I understand, there was a swan found wandering around, being disoriented over in Westgate Park. A couple of penguins were found uh, down further south in the bay, down near Dramana, sort of one of them swimming around in circles and obviously disoriented. So whether that was basically within 24 hours of the event, so there may be a connection, although it seems a long way for a penguin to swim within that uh, time, but who knows.
1: What about the slick that they've taken off the the creek, said that it was going to be taken to the sewer?
5: Yeah, that's my understanding.
1: What impact could that have on, because that's a food growing area down there isn't it?
5: I'm not sure how they would, I couldn't really comment on that um, Jan. Wonder about that too, but uh, <laughs> I'm assuming they have processes that uh, would actually handle that. So the question is how long does this product persist in the environment? I did see that uh, it's bled, that the slick would disperse and uh, you know, with wave action, et cetera, it would break up and, and uh, just go into the atmosphere that was one my understanding of it but yeah I, I'm not sure how they would handle that in the in this sewer treatment situation.
1: As the bay keeper what's your major concerns?
5: I guess uh, we need to know more about the again how long it does persist and whether it does you know this, this is something that is a key concern with anything that coming out of the catchments there are Various chemicals and you know, things coming off roads right across the Melbourne catchments that, uh, in the past, have settled in the sediments in the Yarra. And this, as the uh, silt build up to enable the container ships to get into the port, then they need to be dredged. And uh, that, historically, the dredge material has been disposed of in Port Phillip Bay, in the channel deepening situation, uh, a bund wall was created to actually place that dredge material, there was over 3 million cubic metres of dredge material put in there, and then that was capped after some time. Uh, it seems to me to be uh, a time bomb waiting, <laughs> waiting to happen if we've got these contaminated uh, sediments that uh, really shouldn't be in a waterway. To continue to place those sort of materials in, in the bay is a, is a concern.
1: So you could imagine that they'd be planning to dredge again to get rid of these materials? Not necessarily, only
5: if it's going to uh, prevent the passage of the the container ships, but that will happen in due course. I mean, we're assuming that there's going to be a a future, Jan, whether it be in 20 years' time or 50 years' time or even 100 years' time. There's going to be continuing build-up of contaminated materials and the practice of dumping those materials in the bay uh, is very foolhardy, in my opinion.
1: You've obviously been talking to people along the bay in the last week or so. What are they? What are their concerns? What are they talking about? Oh,
5: well, most people naturally are interested to know what, how it might impact on their patch, you know, on the water quality at their beach, for example. So they're the, they're the key concerns. So the EPA have been doing testing in in various sites. Um, I haven't heard. Definitively, what they have um, said about that, but as I understand it, there haven't been any beach closures though. But they've warned people uh, that you know, and swimming uh, and keeping pets out of water, too, is the other thing. Uh, I guess the toll you in, for example, is does create neurological disorders. So that's, that's a key issue. That, so keeping animals of any sort, whether they be human or, or dogs, for example, uh, out of the water has been the main warning that's been issued.
1: Well, they did warn people not to eat the fish out of the Stony Creek, but they showed photos of people fishing and taking the fish out. That's they right. that, that th- fish
5: yeah, I saw on the Saturday, uh, which is only about two days after the fire, there certainly were quite a lot of people fishing down that, uh, but not not on the Warmies Wharf itself. And um, for some reason, I'm not sure why that was. Quite a few people, only a few hundred meters downstream of there, I did see dead fish though too in that general area. So uh, there were crews actually collecting dead animals from the Stony Creek backwash over and that was continuing over the weekend, uh, as I understand it.
1: And that will affect the bird life, won't it? Because the birds will see all those fish. And
5: well, yeah, that was the one thing I was alerted to. There's a seal that apparently has been uh, in the neighbourhood of that uh, area that for over a year or more now. Uh, it was uh, noticed to be sort of um, rummaging around in the Stony Creek backwash. So if it was eating fish, uh, would be a sad end for that seal, there are other people we're concerned about uh, there 's a frog population that 's established in the creek, uh, which may be gone now, also herons you know that actually feed and, and breed in that area and of course across the river to westgate park there 's a lot of water birds and uh, ducks and things like that so but there hasn 't been as to my understanding uh, it, the the deaths have been Pretty localised, uh, actually, in the, in the creek backwash itself rather than more widely, other than the swan at Westgate Park. But yeah, so there hadn't been dead animals sort of turning up uh, more widely. But I, maybe I just haven't uh, had the right people to <laughs> tell me what's going on, but uh, that hasn't come across my uh, radar though.
1: The years that you've been working down in that area, of you? Obviously, there's been fires and runoffs over those years. How long does it take a creek or a river to recover from such an episode?
5: Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, like, and I suppose the main question is what do you mean by recover? You know, so to fully recover, if if that was to bring back all of the biodiversity that was there, I'd say probably never. It's it's hard, really. Um, There'll be a significant fire like this one uh, with, obviously, the runoff was... um, Uh, impacting on a large area and depleting oxygen. As I understand, it's one of the reasons why the animals were dying, the fish in particular, is due to oxygen depletion. So that would be affecting a whole host of other organisms. So uh, there may be some species uh, there that, um, even though the environment has been severely modified, which by uh, urbanisation over many years, and also let's not forget that the... uh, EPA didn't exist until about 1970. uh, So uh, there was a chemical effluent just been put into the stormwater system in Melbourne for many, many years. So that would have probably uh, reduced the biodiversity in those natural waterways or what was left of them significantly. But uh, with the introduction of uh, effluent having to go to to the sewerage system and the stormwater system being uh, left uh, relatively uh, unpolluted, there has been a resurgence of species coming back, such as the frogs that were mentioned before. And but this is a reminder, though, that uh, those things can be fleeting. It's difficult to actually put a, a time on, but I guess it's a work in progress. Is probably the best way to look at it in terms of biodiversity that there's always going to be. Fluctuations in, and peaks and, and troughs uh, So what we would hope is that we can put things in place Where the storage of those kind of chemicals that, Which are so significant in volumes that probably needs to be um, some much more stringent provisions on that And particularly in regard to uh, preventing any escape into the environment Whether it be through the atmosphere or waterways
1: Well they used to have two put signs on the fence of the factories, didn't they, yeah. to say which chemicals are in there so that when the fire brigade ha- happened to right, come yeah. that they'd know what they had to fight.
5: I haven't really caught up on that, but I'm sure they'll, they'll, that'll be being thoroughly investigated and I know the WorkSafe people are quite diligent about their job, so um, well, it'll be interesting to see what the what was actually happening there.
1: And when you say that it's, it's so many years since the introduction of the EPA, it's also the many groups and individuals over those years that have worked really hard to look after the rivers and the bay?
5: That's right, incredible amount of work, a massive workforce that probably doesn't really get due recognition. If you were to put a cost on it you know, per, per volunteer hour it would be extraordinary contribution to the economy really. Often people possibly weren't even making note of what animals lived there previously as well. Uh, with those people getting involved in caring for waterways and they were actually you know, there were groups that were more regularly and systematically recording bird species and that sort of thing. Programs like Frog Watch for example that have been introduced so there's much more focus on being observant about and recording what's, what species are in the environment now which is a great step forward uh, so we can understand and, and measure the impacts of these things in a better way. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the things that you do as a baykeeper, isn't it?
5: Yeah, I think uh, it's important that um, people are actually out there systematically recording what species are around. So I've been doing um, uh, mollusk surveys in intertidal areas for the last few years and uh, that's an interesting thing to do uh, in the sandy things because there hasn't really been much work, systematic research of that particular community Why
1: is it important to know?
5: I'm interested in it because um, inevitably as sea levels rise uh, The habitat that, of the intertidal sandy areas is going to be displaced It'll either migrate further inland if it's allowed to But in situations where there are seawalls being created It'll have to go somewhere else, you know, so there, there may be some species that live within a particular zone beneath the uh, in the intertidal area that uh, could be lost. Our understanding of how important they are to the food chain, for example, is is limited because there hasn't really been much study on them. So, uh, the key point, I suppose, from my perspective as as the Port Phillip Bay keeper, is that I'd like people who live in the local area to know what animals live in their area and what to, what to call them, because if you, they don't know what to call them, they won't speak about them, and if they don't speak about them, they don't exist. So, so tech, you know, in terms of government policy or management strategies, if, if nobody's um, aware of what's there, well, you know, we're sort of uh, flying blind.
1: But you are involving a lot of the communities around the bay, particularly young people.
5: Yes, I'm uh, very fortunate to get get around and meet lots of good people. Yeah, it's great. Such as? Oh well, um, one of the projects I've been working in um, over the last well, since October last year, we've been monitoring the beach surface sand surface levels at uh, Point Richards, uh, where there's been a new offshore breakwater installed, and that has been put into. Try and influence uh, and ameliorate uh, coastal erosion that's being occur- occurring in that area for um, since the early oh, about 2004, as I understand it. So, uh, and we've been working with students from Gordon TAFE in the conservation and land management course over there, and they're fantastic. You know, great to uh, meet some enthusiastic young people who are. Seeing what the challenges are in managing our coast, and that there's going to be more and more of them as, as uh, sea levels continue to rise. And it's important to note that they have been rising already. It's not something that's about to come about due to climate change. But uh, and so there's going to be ongoing challenges for coastal management. And uh, young people like that are going to be the leaders and uh, the people who shape the future of the coast. So uh, yeah, it's that, that's one example.
1: And, of course, as the weather gets warmer, more people will use the beaches.
5: Oh, inevitably, yeah. They, I, it's, um, a massive percentage of our populations live within 50 kilometres of coastlines anyway around the world, in fact. You know. So if you look at Australia, though, uh, Melbourne's population has just tipped 5 million in, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, that's about 20% of the Australian population. So there's a lot of land out there that's relatively unpopulated but there's a reason for people being near the coast and part of it I think is just the, uh, the climate and the atmosphere that's generated by being near the water.
1: And if you want to keep the bay clean or cleaner you have to make sure that you keep all the rivers and the creeks as we've been talking about clean as well that all run into the bay.
5: That's right, yeah, and uh, just speaking about young people, I uh, had the pleasure to um share a boat yesterday with the Yarra Riverkeeper. Uh, we had two students on board who were industrial design students. We were doing trawls in the in the river at the Maribyrnong and the Yarra for microplastics, and uh, they are very interested in um, developing some tools and equipment for continuing and improving those studies, so uh yeah, again, very. Intelligent young people and uh, interested in uh, doing good things to, to improve our understanding of how we manage the environment, so that was another case of um, uh, the other people i've been working with uh, the Scouts Victoria and the Scouts are embarking on a two year program to do street audits in catchments all of the catchments around the bay, so we can actually see what are the key property types that are generating litter. It is ultimately uh, escaping into our waterways.
1: Is it changing?
5: It is changing. Uh, The study that we released about two months ago on the uh, mountain net trawls that we've been conducting in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong rivers, since January 2015 we've been doing monthly half-hour trawls in each river. We found that 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 averaged... uh, 122 items picked up in the, in the Maribyrnong and 204 items per trawl in the, in the Yarra which uh, if you sort of do the maths and it, it comes to each the two rivers combined are, are generating 828 million items per year that are flowing in the top t- uh, 20 centimetres of the, surf, the waters
1: Items that shouldn't be there
5: That's right, Uh, 74% of them were microplastics, which is 5mm or less. They're items that can easily be ingested by fish or wildlife, so basically the impacts on the food chain are the concern. The other thing is too that as those things are passing through the rivers, um, particularly in areas where there may be some contaminants, such as a toluene, uh, other things, they, the plastics actually absorb those contaminants onto their surface so that any animal that ingests it is taking in the contaminants. So, this is, this is the concern we have with plastics in, in our waterways that it's ultimately impacting on the food chain.
1: Do you reckon you're making any progress on educating people or are the authorities making any impact on people's habits of throwing rubbish away and throwing plastics? into the streets oh, am well,
5: pleased to see that um, uh, Nick Wakeling is a liberal politician this, um saying that the, his party would commit to uh, a five year program of actual suction uh, removal of, of litter so you know and, and they actually quoted the um, the figure that I mentioned before about eight hundred and twenty eight million in, as a reason for why this needs to be happening so yeah, the thing about it is I think the citizen science ultimately If you have good evidence that's based on good science uh, then that actually gives governments a mandate to, to spend public monies on measures to actually address an issue. If you don't have that evidence. Then they're reluctant to sort of stick their neck out and say, "Oh, we need to spend, you know, three million dollars on something," because there's going to be someone else who'll be saying, "We well, should be spending that three million on my thing." You know, that's it's really critical that um, we have good, strong evidence for our advocacy. Otherwise, you know, we're only just being emotional and you know that all that old hippie stuff, Jan. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, but our government's willing to put money into groups like yours, for advocates for the environment?
5: In this, in this particular case, the trawls that we have been doing have been funded by the State Government through the Lulita Hotspots Program initially and now the Port Phillip Bay Fund. We had to do it to start it off, though, in the first place. You know, So I, I was pleased that, that um, Ron Muir, who's a, a, a well-known world sculptor, actually donated some money to the Port Phillip Echo Centre so that the baykeeper could get a boat. I didn't actually buy a boat, though. What I did was I bought a net.
1: Didn't you need a boat for the net?
5: Well, uh, my good friend, the Yarra Riverkeeper, had a boat, you see. So I thought, well, uh, it's one thing better than having a boat is having a good mate who's got a boat. So the point was that putting those two resources together, having a net which is built to international specifications for capturing microplastics, seemed to me to be a good investment. And as it's turned out, that gave us the means. When we did an initial, some initial trials, gave us enough evidence for the government to say, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's actually worthwhile. We will invest in this, this measure. And so four years later we've now got some really strong evidence and I suppose the key point, getting back to your initial question about it, was that the, the amounts we were recording in the Yarra were actually increasing over the last 12 months and so that's a cause for a concern.
1: Any reasons why, you believe?
5: Uh, well... Uh, just more people. Mm. You know, there may be some changing practices in the local governments uh, because they are key players in, in keeping streets clean, also collecting, you know, curbside garbage collections, that sort of thing. So they're all p- uh, places where it could be sources of introduction of um, plastics getting into the waterways, into the curbs.
1: Just finally, Neil, what you've been saying for many, many years, if Every person that walks along the street sees a, a piece of plastic once a day and picks it up. What a difference a day yeah, makes.
5: that's right. I think um, someone else's job. Uh, yeah, none of my business. You know, that's all okay if you feel like being that way. But you know, why not be positive about the environment and say, no, that shouldn't be there. I'm just going to pick it up and put it in the bin. And people don't think you're a nerd anymore. I mean, I've met people who come in and say, oh, you know, I'm so glad that you showed me that there's these people out there who are picking up stuff. You know, I I thought I was a bit weird.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. There. And that, of course, is Neil Blake, who is the current Port Phillip Baykeeper and one of the leading lights for many, many years behind the Port Phillip Eco-Centre in St Kilda, Have a look at their website and see all the things that happens down at the Port Phillip Eco Centre. It's three minutes past five o'clock. for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. is free proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch. The Old Bar Saturday 6th of October 3 to 6pm. See you there at 3CR Supporter.
3: In 2016, 3CR published a book to
4: celebrate the station's 40th birthday.
6: Years in the making, Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station.
3: At 300 pages, the book includes
1: hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy
0: or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop.
4: Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
1: Last week, students across Victoria protested the syndicate conference hosted by the Australian Government's Defence Science and Technology Group, a research and development organisation for military hardware, a conference which brings together private arms manufacturers and universities. The students organised by the National Union of Students was demanding that universities break all ties with weapons producers as part of its Books Not Bombs campaign. I'm speaking with renegade activist Jacob Greck and Jacob... Can you tell us the time when arms manufacturers got into bed with universities?
7: Well,
6: universities and military have always been closely aligned. I mean, you, the defence and learning institutions go all the way back beyond Clausewitz, all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci, I guess. But in more, a more modern context in Australia, there was a real push... In the 1980s, well you and I at least and some of our, some of the listeners on Tuesday Home Time remember that um, a whole range of cuts to university funding happening in the late 80s at about the same time that defence was being built up. Kim Beasley was education minister for a while and then he was minister for microeconomic reform which gutted a whole lot of university funding and then strangely enough became defence minister and um, what happened was a whole lot of universities started going to defence industry in order to make up the shortfall in funding.
1: Is it ramped up in recent times or it just been a progression?
6: There was a general progression, but just in the last two years it has really ramped up. And strangely enough, we have the same situation where we've got Christopher Pine moving from education to defence industry and he did the same, absolutely gutted, university funding. Christopher Pine did plenty of demonstrations, I went to about that. And then he moved into defence industry, but what is different now, I mean apart from the whole worldwide move to the right and emphasis on, on militarism that's happened in the last 10-15 years, is there's, whereas it used to be a little bit hidden, I guess you know, like universities didn't like to advertised the fact too much that they were working for arms companies because there was there was still a general feeling that universities were places of learning not killing so if I can just run one example by you back in 1991 might have been 1992 at students and science and sustainability it was held at the ANU campus that year I was talking about how the The coating, the ceramic coating for the B-2 stealth bomber was rumoured to to have been partly developed at RMIT University. And then one bloke came up to me afterwards, and it was pre-mobile, pre-internet days, of course, so he asked me more details about it, and he was really interested, so I told him I'd give him a call next time I was in Canberra, I'd bring some information down with me. And when I brought the information down with me, he was, sorry, next time I was in Melbourne... He freaked out because he was apparently one of the ceramic scientists who worked on the coding for the B two stealth bomber without knowing it. As a pure scientist he was working on a on a ceramic with this and that and the other property. And it basically broke his heart that he'd been work that he was working on this. But nowadays, um so while that was hidden and you often had companies nesting other companies and nesting their funding. So, for example, Boeing wouldn't make a million-dollar grant to RMIT directly. Boeing would, find, would have a company or a subsidiary called, you know, for argument's sake, Ceramic Research Industries, and that company would donate the million dollars or provide a scholarship to the university. But nowadays they're quite open and quite proud of their... Of their relationship with defense industry, so I guess that's the big difference that that it is now so rampant, and militarism is now such an everyday part of our of our culture that universities have no shame whatsoever
1: and the defense white paper of two thousand and sixteen that must have um ramped it up a bit too with the huge increase in defence spending,
6: yes. Yeah, defence spending and also the defence export facilitation bill. Yes. Because it's hard to talk about defence without talking about the global, global capitalism, I guess. But what we've had is that, you know, people like ourselves and trade unions have been decrying the, the death of manufacturing in Australia. It's hard to buy something that's made in Australia anymore and, you know, the, we witnessed the death throes of our car industry over the last couple of years. So we need to have, I mean, industry capability. So if we, as well as exporting defence, uh, military products, we also need to have these military products in order to maintain a level of engineering and industry capability of Australia, which, which is important to, um, to be able to continue making stuff. And of course, While we're working on cars, if we're talking about cars and washing machines and fridges, etc., all things are subject to international trade laws. So the only things that aren't subject to international trade laws are military equipment. So we can put money and grants and research funding into military equipment where we can't put money and grant funding into automotive equipment, for example.
1: Is there any idea of just how much money is involved over Australia with the universities?
6: It is absolutely impossible to say because it's all commercial in confidence, but we're talking
1: in the hundreds of millions. And are certain universities putting their hand up more than others?
6: Yes, certain universities have better record in engineering, for example. You know, the RMIT, being the previous Institute of Technology, has done a lot of work over the years in aerospace. Just a few years ago, there was a major drone conference there. Boeing, BAE, Raytheon, all work with, within, um, RMIT. Melbourne University, of course, has Lockheed Martin and a couple of other, a couple of other major arms companies, but Lockheed Martin have what they call their Stellar Lab, which is the largest defence research lab of Lockheed Martin's outside of the United States, but it goes way beyond, way beyond all, all of that. If you look, for example, let me just um, I'm just pulling up a, a page here, to be honest with you, to look at some of these some of the things. You look at the New South Wales University Collaboration for Defence, which is um, the University of Technology. And the Sydney Aerospace Defence Group have just built a so-called Centre of Excellence up in the, in the Hunter region outside Williamtown Air Base. And because that's where the F-35s are going to be based and they, they want to take advantage of all the, all the possibilities coming out of the F-35 fleet. Down in Adelaide, we've got another thing called the Defence Teaming Centre, which is working with the submarine corporation and uh, and the naval group working with um, the University of Adelaide and the University, uh, Flinders University it's also bringing in UWA, RMIT Charles Darwin University and South Metropolitan TAFE in Adelaide and TAFE SA and that's just one thing that's happening there you've got small composite companies like Penguin Composites working with a major arms company called Talos Australia. Talus, some people call it Tails, the old the, the big French multinational. And they're working with University of Queensland, Swinburne and Deakin and RMIT to develop compounds with unique characteristics for military vehicles, for example. You've got all over every university. I can't find a university. I can't find anything at Victoria University, to be honest. But every other university in Australia has defence ties
1: Where does that yeah. leave academic freedom?
6: <laughs> I didn't know this was a comedy show, Jed <laughs> Yeah, no, there is no academic, there is no academic freedom mate. There hasn't been academic freedom for a while because the important thing to understand is it's not just that these companies are providing research dollars to make up to the universities because the universities need it and they want to keep open access to education, what they're doing, and the things like syndicate, the um, science industry mob had a conference last week in Melbourne, actually boast about the fact that putting funding into research projects guides and develops the direction of curriculum. All right, so we're, we've got a situation where It's not just that we're working on defence industry, it's that defence industry is playing a larger part in the curriculum. What is determining what is the right thing for our students to learn is the defence industry. And that's what scares me. You have a situation like happening in South Australia and Western Australia now, I believe, where it's not only university but projects going down into high schools and even primary schools funded by arms companies which are again affecting the curriculum of what kids as young as you know seven eight nine years old are learning and that that scares the bejesus out of me to be honest
1: well you might have laughed about academic freedom are you going to laugh about ethics as well
6: well i think we should have ethics obviously I try to live to a certain ethical code myself, as do most 3CR listeners, but these people are beyond ethics. I mean, if you're talking about building military equipment that is being used, as we speak, equipment that was designed and researched in Australia is being used in places like Afghanistan, Yemen, Iraq, to kill children to kill people, to destroy whole villages. So I don't know where someone would get off saying, but we have the ethics that we're not going to teach young white Australian children about killing people, but we're going to use these, we're going to use the research, we're going to use Australian weapons to kill men, women and children in third world countries. I mean, there are no ethics in the military.
1: Well, hopefully it will deter many people from going into academia if that's the case.
6: Well, I mean, it has now. Even my young bloke going to university—he's like—he's he's a bit of a science, a bit of a science nerd. He would have loved to have gone into aerospace, like a lot of young blokes, is the a factor of, of of space. But as he said to me, it's all paid for and subsidised by military corporations. So he's going to go into biomedicine, which is, you know, as I said to his son, it's. Or big farmer anyway, but um, because it's not just defence; it's also the big farmer companies and the agricultural companies study um, putting money into universities. But that's just engineering. But the other interesting thing is it's not just in the engineering fields. We got I saw a, a thing out the other day from Syndicate, which is the science and industry is a um, what they do is it's a it's a forum put together by Christopher Pyne as um, Minister for Defence Industry to get industries together with universities so that universities can use their facilities and their students as capital to gain money from from defence companies. But they're holding this thing called the Defence Human Sciences Symposium. So it's not just engineering. It's, it's people looking in all kinds of humanitarian fields, uh, humanities fields as well, psychology, social workers, all the rest of it, to study human teams, and it says here, and the degree to which knowledge about humans generalises the opportunities and challenges presented by teams of humans and non-human agents of critical importance. So it's, it's even getting, you know, kids who may have gone into psychology or social work or community development work for the purest of motives, and putting squillions of dollars into that area of research to get them working into how to make, you know, A, the military more effective, but also we all know about the use of psychology as a weapon. So, as I say, it's, it's in every field of endeavour.
1: And every country, every Western country?
6: Every Western country. Britain, United States... Australia. every country has defence industry in its universities. Let's not make a mistake about that, in fact. And I'm not a pacifist at all. I think that if we are, you know, sovereign nations do have the right to defend themselves, and if we are going to defend ourselves, and we do need to have some kind of homegrown, self-directed military.
1: But are we a sovereign nation or aren't we? But we're we?
6: not. But that's the point I was going to make. We're <laughs> not. We don't have the or the right you know we have for example Lockheed Martin in Melbourne University now Lockheed the CEO of Lockheed Martin Australia two weeks ago I think it was Vince De Pietro, made this press conference where they're installing all Lockheed Martin technologies across all platforms in defence so Lockheed Martin are basically going to be running the communication between all platforms in Australia's defence now thing is for Lockheed to be able to sell to Australia or any country at all outside the United States, one thing they need to be able to do by law in the United States is turn off the systems, if and when they're directed to. We haven't even got the sovereign right to full decision-making processes over our own weapon systems anymore.
1: What about BAE, the British company? They've got blood on their hands too, haven't they, everywhere around the world?
6: Everywhere around the world, the sun never sets on the British Empire back in the day, but the sun now never sits on a British on a British Aerospace BAE Systems plant. They're in RMIT. They're in Newcastle Univ- Hunter University. They're in Sydney Institute of Technology. They're in Melbourne University, I believe. And I know they're in Flinders. I know they're in Queensland Institute of Technology. They're everywhere. And they're, um, they're an insidious company. I mean, they are the... I reckon they're the the early, um, what's the word, forerunner, the template for what we call the modern military-industrial complex. You know, they were the mobs 100 years ago, or more than 100 years ago, pre-First World War, who were selling the Gatling gun to this mob and then the Maxim gun to that mob and and basically building up the arms race in in Europe in the lead-up to the First World War. They were called Vickers and a whole lot of other companies then, but they've just gone from strength to strength in British aerospace. They've been involved in major fraud and bribery cases in Africa, in Tanzania in particular, in South Africa, and in Saudi Arabia, where the British government has decided to drop all prosecution against them, where it's been shown that they've been bribing and fraudulently selling equipment to um, despotic regimes in africa against english law and and nothing has been done to stop them all charges were not dropped just not proceeded with so when you contrast that for example to the kind of scenes they're threatening julian assange with for for the crime of not turning up for bail on charges which were never laid and allegations which have now been dropped you see the well, I probably don't need to talk to you or the listeners about the hypocrisy inherent in the capitalist system.
1: When you were talking about the list of universities before, there seemed to be a fair emphasis on South Australian institutes. Is that correct or not?
6: South Australia, Adelaide, has always had a larger role to play in the military than most other cities. Because of, you know, Woomera being up there and it's had shipbuilding for a long time, So, yeah, there does seem to be an emphasis in South Australia. For example, South Australia, as I said before, has arms company Saab, Weapon Systems, in high schools and primary schools, with some private schools in South Australia boasting that all their classes, and this is a school that starts at PrEP, all their classes have access to Saab Australia's STEM program. So, yeah, South Australia does seem to have... A bit more than anywhere else I guess but that's also possibly because Christopher Pine is from South Australia.
1: What's the STEM program?
6: STEM is science, technology, engineering and mathematics. There was concern maybe 10 years ago, maybe a dozen years ago development that girls weren't getting into STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and math subjects And so funding was put into what they called STEMs, STEM programs, particularly aimed at young women, but now aimed at all people in general to get involved in these science things. But unfortunately, while I've absolutely no problem with young people getting involved in the sciences, there was not enough funding for it. So arms companies came to the fore with funding because STEM subjects are the ones that arms companies are mostly interested in. And you end up with a thing called, like in South Australia, um, you have Saab got a subs in schools program where it uses the fact that they're building submarines and weapon systems for submarines as the the wow factor, I guess, to get kids interested in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. So there's a, you know, Saab work with a mob called Re-Engineering Australia Foundation, Which, as I say, sounds good. Australia should be re-engineered. We should build up our um, manufacturing capability base. But what's happening in South Australia is it, you know, I'll just quote you from their um, pamphlet here. Subs in schools allow students to explore the complex challenges of maritime engineering and hydrodynamics using coding and electronics as they design and build operational submarines and, yeah, goes on and on and on and on. ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, which are like submarine drones. So you've got, as I say, schools in South Australia, primary schools, who, you know, take, for example, I'll, I'll take the... Most of us of a certain age have kids. I look at my own kids, and I think that if my young bloke who was, in, who was interested in science, say he was eight or nine years old, what would I say if the school he went to offered him a place in a STEM program for Saab Australia. It would almost be irresponsible as a parent or derelict as a parent to not give them the opportunity to study science at that level. But then you have a situation where where these schools, the, the schools that are taking this up, sorry, it's happening in Queensland as well, are based in regions. For example, there might be you know to put it in a melbourne perspective there might be one in brunswick one in coburg one in sunshine one you know in the eastern suburbs or inner east one in dandenong one in frankston one in footscray so that wherever you were in melbourne if you had if you were good at stem subjects you'd go to one of these schools your, your local one of these schools where you had where you then were accelerated through science technology engineering and math And the problem with that is that with arms companies not only providing money, but providing the resources and sending speakers and teachers in to teach these subjects. You have a kid, let's say it's your kid or my kid, they get involved in this program and then they go to a high school, which is big in the STEM programs. Because they've been in STEM, they get offered a university place to study science technology at a university in a course subsidised by an arms company and once they get their degree, they go to work for that arms company. So you're getting kids of like seven, eight years old and placing them on the the fast track to being weapons designers.
1: Well, it sounds to me as if they've got it all sewn up, but you just wonder what's in the future.
6: Yeah, and, and like so many things, Jan, whether we're talking about refugees or weapon systems or deforestation or, you know, housing issues, homelessness, whatever we're talking about. It comes back to none of these things can be solved in isolation. That what we need to look at is another, dare I say it, if you've got a problem with capitalism, we need to look at another form of running our society because as long as we're all staying... Within the rules and working by the games of capitalist consumerist society, then one step is inexorably going to lead to the next, and that's where we are at the moment.
1: Okay, thanks, Jacob. Um, I'll take that up.
6: So to wed that, that down a note.
1: Well, I mean the whole issue is down, isn't it? Really, it,
6: it, it is, and it's you know and it's it's like I'll often say to people complaining about a particular aspect of. Of this, that, or the other happening, but I'll often say, "What? You got a problem with capitalism? (laughs) You know?
1: Yeah. All
6: right. Okay, mate. Thanks for that.
1: Thank you. Bye bye. See ya. And that's renegade activist Jacob Grek. And if you'd like to hear more of Jacob, every Friday between five and five thirty, and he calls his program a Friday rave, and I reckon it'd be pretty good rave to listen to at the end of the working week.
0: And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
1: On the 8th of July this year, the leaders of Eritrea and Ethiopia pledged to restore diplomatic relations and open their borders to each other. The next day they signed a joint declaration. The conflict has ended. This is not the first peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia and relations between the two nations has historically been adversarial and even with this new deal there is deep skepticism which we will hear about in this interview. I'm speaking with Salah Abdul Aman, an Eritrean living in Perth, Western Australia. Salah As I said, there is a long history of conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Does this begin with the long war for independence from Ethiopia? Or do we need to go back further for an understanding of the conflict which continues into the 21st century?
8: Uh, All right, thank you. Uh, Before I just answer your question, uh, I would like to thank you, John. And I would also like to thank uh, Radio 3CR for having me today. Before I even go further to your question, I would like to congratulate the Eritrean people on the occasion of the uh, 57th anniversary of the start of the armed struggle, which was on the 1st of September 1961. This day is considered to be one of the most important days in our uh, Eritrean history, It is a historical juncture, I would call it, in Eritrean history, so uh, that's the point. So to come to your question, uh, let me give a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, what this country that we're talking about is. It is a country that was established as a political entity after World War II, during the Italian uh, colonization. So uh, the Eritrea, uh, the country came into being during the Italian colony, and then uh, after the Italians were defeated, we were under the British military administration or the BMA. During that time, you know, there was a little bit of uh, relative freedom in terms of, you know, freedoms of expression, freedoms of press. So Italians started to, uh, to talk about their independence, about expressing, you know, the will for independence. And they had actually a couple of political parties uh, which were asking for independence at that time. For good luck or bad luck, you know, the British uh, to hand us to Ethiopia under the uh, federal arrangement, even though the Eritrean the people was looking for independence, will was ignored by the international communities. You know, we remember that's the time when African countries were getting independent. But, you know, Eritrea, uh, for the interest of the superpowers, it has to remain under the empire. Of Ethiopia, you know, to keep the interest of the Americans, because America, you know, America deals with Africa. Is you know, it, they, it it creates power centers throughout the continent. In West Africa, they have a big ally, you know, Nigeria. In North, they have Egypt, and then in South, they have South Africa. And uh, in the East, they have to have you know this big empire of Ethiopia of uh, more than 100 million. So they don't want that, you know, that country to be landlocked. If Eritrea gets independent, then Ethiopia will remain landlocked. So the issue started to be complicated from there. We were federated with Ethiopia, but Ethiopia, you know, they could not, you know, hold up the agreement. So they broke or breached the federal arrangements and they just announced Eritrea to be a mere part of Ethiopia. That's where the time Eritreans started to look for another option, so that they started an armed struggle in 1961. To it took 30 years, and it cost about 60,000 to get into independence in 1991. So, you know, after independence in 1991, there was a political honeymoon for about seven years. You know, you know, economic relations, political relations, social relations, all aspects of good relations start with Ethiopia, and we had a good time. In Eritrea, that time was a transition state from the revolution to, uh, you know, a a civil government. So we started to make, you know, our own issues like constitution. We have all these domestic political homework that we need to do. But, you know, the leadership in Eritrea, they didn't like this, uh, you know, light of democracy to shine in Eritrea. So after, you know, about seven years after the constitution was drafted and ratified in 1997, the, uh, the current dictator in Eritrea realized that there's going to be elections according to the constitution. And who knows, he might lose the election or so he might lose his power. So he has to look for a reason for justification to, to hold this constitution from being practical. So yes, they found that. And that was a border conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia that uh, broke out uh, in the year 1998, May 1998. And everything after that revolves around the border conflict. If you ask about the constitution, the answer you get from the regime is that, you know, uh, we are in a state of war. We cannot have constitutions. That's not the right time to ask for. If you ask for the indefinite national service that our youth are, you know, suffering from, they will tell you, look, your country is under a foreign threat. Ethiopia is is a landlocked country. They always look for access to the sea, and this is the right time for them. So we have to keep everyone in the national service, the military national service, without payment. If you ask about anything related with uh, rule of law, they will tell you, no, no, it is not the right time. So, yeah, it worked. That was the justification. So uh, we were held hostage since the eruption of this border conflict, let's say, for about 20 years now. Yeah, that was the justification.
1: But these leaders who are treating the people of Eritrea badly, they were the people that led Eritrea to independence.
8: Yes. Right.
1: What went wrong?
8: Uh, well, yeah, that's a million-dollar question. I would say, you know, we trusted these people because, as you said, you know, they brought us from team uh, you know, unexpected independence to you know, bright uh, independent country where Eritreans. Uh, we became proud of our identity. We became part of the you know of the world community, and uh, we put a lot of trust on this leadership, that they led the revolution. And I think that trust went too far, I would say. When the trust goes too far, people who lead you, they will feel that they are more than what they are. So that's what happened. We didn't have any questions. We, we that was, you know, our fault during the revolution. We were supposed to ask them questions at that time, but people were saying because of to get into independence, we have to... Trust our leadership, they are good for us, whatever they say is right, so yeah, we end up in this situation. actually uh, I would put into question whether those uh, leaders were fighting for for independence or for their for their power because we didn't see anything something got to do with with independence. we didn't see any any freedom our youth are you know getting uh, you know in the service for many many years without payment and we get imprisoned with comunicados. so everything is a question someone should ponder to to ask
1: so there's no free press there's no freedom of assembly there's no freedom of association is that what you're saying the only
8: newspaper that we have is a newspaper that is owned by the government. The only uh, television channel that we have is a television channel that is owned by the government. All the press, like the newspapers, you know, all this press stuff was closed in the year 2000. This was the time when the government imprisoned about 15 ministers or higher officials of the Eritrean government at that time, claiming that those ministers were, you know, trying to sell the country... So they were suspected of of treason because government, you know, suspected them that they were somehow working with the European government and they want to overthrow the, the leadership of the kind of and that was actually not true.
1: The trouble is if people are kept down like that and punished all the time, whether it's through forced labour or slave labour or you no know, democracy, the country doesn't develop is that what's happened for eritrea it is a very underdeveloped country
8: yes that's true if you see eritrea during the italian colonization like if you go back like 70 years back you will see today eritrea you know a different Eritrea. in in what respect how we went back you know so eritrea was much better than the italian colonization if you see the streets in Asmara at that time and this was more today, you can see the difference. So, uh, this country, we can't say it's a country, actually. It's a failed state. It is simply failed state. There is no any institution. Can you imagine a government without a constitution? A government without institutions? A government without a civic societies? What would you think would provide for its people? Nothing.
1: If that is the case, why has the government of Ethiopia signed a peace deal with this failed state?
8: You know, it's a little bit complicated. I would say the peace deal that we see between Eritrea and Ethiopia today is an orchestrated peace. It is a peace that is being designed by the world powers and the regional powers, especially or specifically by the United States and the Arab or the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and Emirates. I say this because the Americans were in favor of the TPLF, the politically dominant party, before this government came into power. So once the Americans, they felt that the TPLF, or that was the minority people government, so once they felt that that party is losing ground in Ethiopia, so they have to change, they have to look for an alternative. So they came up with an alternative of Abiy Ahmed. And Abiy Ahmed is, you know, is considered to be from the dominant population in Ethiopia. This is the point that is coming from. And they have to do a, a peace deal with, with Eritrea. The Ethiopians were paid about $3 billion by the United Arab Emirates to come into peace with the Eritreans. The Eritreans, who knows, because Eritrea, they don't tell how much they were paid by Saudi Arabia... And United Arab Emirates, lots and lots of money, because the Eritrean dictator is being going, for and back from Saudi Arabia, Emirates, and there are deals that is being signed there. So this peace deal, is not coming from within, especially for us. I don't want to talk about Ethiopia. Probably, for Ethiopian people, it looks like good because the Ethiopian government started with really political. It, it started pardoning, you know, to the state political organizations which were listed under uh, terrorist organizations. They lifted this ban and they, they invited them to come to Addis Ababa. But in Eritrea, nothing of that sort is happening. As we speak today, people are crossing from Eritrea to neighboring countries to flee from there. So this peace has no meaning for Eritrean people. We are still a government without any constitution. We are still a government that people are being imprisoned in communicado. We are still a government that does not own any uh, free press. So no change for Eritreans. It is no change for us. So it doesn't give any meaning.
1: So this is mainly, would you say, because of the geographic situation of Eritrea, where you're situated in the world, so close to Yemen's Saudi Arabia is that part of the problem
8: yes that is part of the problem we cannot put all our problems in one basket though. we have internal issues but uh, for Eritrea that is being a lot of problem as I told you when Eritrea was federated with Ethiopia it is for the sake of Ethiopians because Ethiopia being a big country not only big Christian country, the West was so interested to have a good relation with Ethiopia, so so they didn't want Ethiopia to be you know a landlocked. So they uh, they had to keep Ethiopia uh, with some sort of an access to the sea, and to do that, they have to sell Eritrea, or they have it should be at the cost of Eritrean independence. If that that happens, because you know we were asking for independence from the beginning. So yes, as you said, it is a strategic place. Like thirty percent of the of the world oil cars or passes through that spot through the Red Sea through Babyl Mendeb so you can see, you know, the gravity of the situation there. So absolutely right, because of the strategic place we're getting all this.
1: But in a sense it's also tragedy too, because that's the route where young people are taking to try and escape from Eritrea and reach Europe.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, you know what? Eritrean people, especially the young generations, are left with two choices. They have to stay within Eritrea and remain slaves for their life, or they have to go through the border to the neighboring countries, pass through a policy that kills everyone found crossing the border. So, Eritrea has a policy in place that says kill everyone being found crossing the border, shoot to kill policy. So, if someone is lucky and passes through this, they face the human traffickers. Human traffickers, these are people that deceive the young generation telling them that they're going to take them to a safe haven to Europe. So, what they do is they get these young people, and they ask them a lot of money, $30,000, $50,000. If they don't have that money, they sell their organs. They take them to Egypt, to Libya. They, take, they extract the organs, their kidneys, the labors, and sell it to those who are in need. So let's say they pass through this. There is the last checkpoint, which is the Mediterranean Sea. So they have to go through Mediterranean Sea in boats where the security level is very low. So if they make it to Europe, that's good. But what is the chance of going through all these obstacles? These are the fates of Eritrean young generation. No one talks about this. Well, the United Nations have reported now and then, but... Apart from reporting, they're not taking any concrete action. They're not being strong enough to raise the level of this danger to the uh, Security Council so that some measure could have been taken, but they didn't. The uh, Human Rights Watch, the Amnesty International, everyone is reporting, but there is no action from the international community, unfortunately.
1: And into this situation comes an Australian mining company.
8: Well, look, this mining company, as said last time, they are taking every opportunity of this free labor in Eritrea. Eritrea is a government where young generations work for more than 27 years now working for free. So they are taking this opportunity, and they are making money at the cost of this young generation. And this is an act that should be condemned. This is an inhumane act. So for an Australian company from a country that respects human rights, such as Australia, to have a company based here in Western Australia and involved in mm-hmm. such unhumanistic activities, it is a shame for all of us. We need to talk and we need to take this matter seriously. But the good news is the Australian Foreign Affairs and aid subcommittee, I've just got a letter from them today that says, well, they have recently undertook an inquiry into a modern slavery and produced a report. And that report was entitled Hidden in Plain Slight. So, I mean, Hidden in Plain sight. This is an inquiry which will establish a modern slavery act in Australia. So if it passes the lower house and the upper house, so good luck for us, and we will work and we will see what will happen.
1: Will you name the company?
8: This is a Dankalai. It is a Dankalai. This is a Portage company. It's in a joint venture with an Eritrean mining company called Enamco. It is a 50 50% joint venture. So they share 50% with the Eritrean government mining company, which is another 50%. So they are involved in activities which should be condemned by the international community. We know what is happening. I was there. I worked in Australia for free for three years without any payment. Lucky enough, I made it to Australia. But for those who are there, God knows what will happen to them. So, dankalai is a Western Australian company. Please, they need to to listen to our complaints. They need to come to their minds. Not like last time, they denied our reporters. They denied the reporters of the United Nations. They denied the reporters of the uh, Human Rights Watch. They denied the reporters of the uh, Amnesty International. They said all those reports were politically motivated. How is that? How is that possible? motivated all these, you know, international community organizations politically to stand against Eritrea, which is so special about Eritrea. We always ask them to come into their minds and stop mining in Eritrea. My final word is this. The peace deal that we witnessed between Eritrea and Ethiopia had nothing to do with Eritrean people. It is not coming from inside Eritrean people. You cannot have peace with outside while you don't have it in inside. So peace, a genuine peace should start from inside. How does it start? It starts from inside by giving the opportunity to the people to have their say. By giving the opportunity to the people to have their say. That's my final word. Thank you.
1: Thank you. You have been listening to Salah and Eritrean, now living in Perth, Western Australia. Next a song which Salah told me beautifully expresses the Eritrean people's current situation and the singer is Hussein Mohammed Ali. <laughs>
7: With that, 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 داشي فيا لعب مع يوم لثورتنا يا ما قبيلنا Yes,
1: been listening to Hussein, Muhammad Ali and before that Salah talking about the situation in Eritrea. That's all I have for today and I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. But do tune in on Friday to speak to listen to Jacob Gregg with his Friday rave between 5 and 5.30 and don't forget Kevin Healy tomorrow morning 9 until 10 with his city limits. So I will say goodbye and um, coming up very soon is Done By Law. Bye for now.